Hello and welcome to the Ocean Impact Podcast. In this episode, we caught up via Skype with David Carter, the CEO of Austral Fisheries. David takes us on an amazing journey through this podcast into what it is that Austral does, how they've become such a leader in sustainable fishing, and what makes this man so special. He is incredibly highly regarded amongst his peers and the business community in Australia, and it was an absolute treat to get to spend over an hour talking with David. During the podcast, David does mention a very exciting accelerator program they are running this year in 2020. Now, if you are listening in and you are someone who thinks you might be able to have an innovative solution to help increase the market of Austral sustainable seafood in Australia, then applications close on the 27th of May. Do a search online for Start Some Good Seafood for Good and you'll find all the information. If you enjoy the podcast, please share and make some commentary, give it a review. We love it when you do so, and feel free to send us any questions. I hope you enjoy this episode of the Ocean Impact Podcast. So very pleased to have on the podcast today, David Carter, who is the CEO of Austral Fisheries. Um, thank you so much for your time, David. Pleasure, Tim. Good to be with you. I think that's Let's, the standard line, isn't it? Good to I be with that you. Is. Yeah, I think that is. Um, look, I think we're going to just go right down to the, the juicy stuff um, from the beginning. Let's just learn a little bit about you, David, and um, tell us, I guess, how you came to be the, the chief executive of Austral Fisheries. And really where I'd love to get off um, initially is just the, the ocean for you. What does the ocean mean? What's your relationship with the ocean? Let's just start. Let's start there, shall we? Yeah, well, I guess um, the ocean began for me as um, sort of a teenager, I think. There was, there was sailing was a big part of it. And then uh, we went uh, out of there, did quite a bit of sailing. So that was um, a lot of uh, <clears throat> small boat work in Bass Strait. And then uh, that, that morphed into during the university years time with um, uh, two Melbourne Hobart yacht races, one Sydney Hobart yacht race, like 5,000 ocean racing miles under my belt at the age of 20. And um, and then sort of uni came sort of uni came around and the choice of courses ended up leading me into sort of a science style course with um, a uh, marine zoology sort of flavour and uh, that all that all seemed to make sense so that included jumping in Bass Strait with with um, the early incarnation of scuba bottles and marvelling marvelling at the wonders beneath the sea. And uh, it was just a big, just a big part of who I became. Even though I'm the son of a vet, and um, he was, he was very much uh, a bit terrestrial. But no, he he, um, he did he did light the fuse on some of the early sailing activities, and that morphed into um, into other things. Great. So you're saying there, your your father was a bit of a, a landlubber, but gave a bit of an insight into getting out on top of the ocean. What was it that drew you to going under the ocean and doing some of those early days in, in scuba? 
Yeah, curiosity, I think. Um, just uh, um, having a look at another perspective. So scuba was just that wonderful experience of weightlessness and sort of freedom. It was a bit vigorous in um, Bass Strait in the middle of winter, so it, it was a test. But um, no, it was kind of just uh, just a mar marvel at all of those, all of those, uh, all that in entirely different environment. And um, you know, I think that 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 wonder remains all those years later. Tell us about the relationship that you have with the ocean now in 2020. Ooh, um, it's come a long way since then, and uh, yeah, it's got it's got a bit more it's a bit more serious. I still I don't spend enough time on the water. That that's um, a tragic reality of uh, life for me now. So I don't I don't own a boat anymore. Um, so the, the ocean for me is now just this um, this focus. Obviously, from a professional point of view it's it's the source of our, um, our livelihood and business activity uh, in a personal sense it's more about what the ocean you know the role the ocean plays on the planet and the um, and the important stewardship uh, we all need to apply to keep it um, keep it keep it in good uh, in good shape and um, uh, yeah it's really the ocean's now one of those become a cause I guess for me Mm, and that's going to really be the subject of, of today's conversation. But let's go back again to the transition. So once you graduated university, you found yourself working as a deckhand on a prawn trawler. So how and why did that um, that leap happen from a graduate to then going and working on a, on a prawn trawler? Uh, yeah, I think uh, after three years at uni, I hadn't uh, any great ambition to become like uh, higher order science, you go and get a PhD in marine science, join one of the scientific institutions if you could get a job. But uh, at that time, and we're talking late 70s here, Australia was just declaring a 200 mile exclusive economic zone. And um, I'd kind of I'd kind of got sick of being a, a barnacle on the asshole of society. So I thought um, I should go and do something useful. And um, I stepped up thought uh, fish, the fishing game would be a good thing. You know, all this, all this new exclusive economic zone, we can um, see if we can make a difference there. So I uh, uh, went to the local post office, rifled through lots of different yellow pages from around the, uh, around the country, ended up writing about 40 letters to what I thought were the bigger fishing interests around the, around the country, got two only replies, um, and both were out of Western Australia. And uh, off the back of that, uh, one of those opportunities was with um, uh, indeed this business, so in its various antecedents. And the guy that interviewed me uh, was less an interview, more of a, a two-hour two monologue, which was gorgeous and very generous of him. But at the end of that, he said, um, "There's a boat. There's a boat leaving Darwin in a week. You can be on it. You can be on it if you want." So um, scurried home. Had a had a premature 21st birthday and uh, got on a plane to Darwin. So, um, yeah, that was a bit, that was a big change. Had you um, pitched yourself for any particular role? It was literally just, I want to work on a vessel, I'll do anything. Pretty much, yeah. No, I knew I wanted to be something useful. I figured I had to start at the bottom. I had no trouble with that. Um, you know, it, it fit with all the sailing background, so I knew how to tie a knot and, and uh so I tie a boat up and those sorts of basic things, given the giving that experience. 
and um, the rest I had to kind of learn on the job. But, uh, you know, I was, I was pretty much dispatched and <clears throat> Murray said at that stage, um, you, you, you can go off to sea and become a trainee millionaire. So um, still in training, Tim. <laughs> so you obviously spent a lot of time out there working in the fisheries that you are now um, at the head of. So tell us a little bit about the experience out there on the trawlers, um, what it was like then, what it's like now. Yeah, it was pretty colourful. Um, yeah, at that, that stage, uh, the, most of the workforce was either hiding from somewhere or escaping or trying to dodge alimony payments or something. So, um, yeah, really colourful set of wild characters. So it was a bit of an affront for um, for um, a sweet young thing like myself from middle comfortable middle-class Melbourne uh, to find himself in the middle of the wilds of the of the great north, northern Australia. And um, within six weeks of being on this boat, I was the longest-serving crewman, <clears throat> uh, which tells you something. <laughs> And, um, yeah, it was pretty, um, it was interesting times. But, uh, again, my personality was uh, was able to fit in and just roll with, roll with the punches. And I ended up working seven months solid with that skipper. And, um, and uh, he was very grateful. Got a nice little cash bonus at the end and went home and bought my first um, diesel-powered golf. So um, I, was, I was hooked. So you were hooked, and so from there, where did the where did the journey take you next? Was it just a matter of coming back and doing season after season for a while? When did you start to see? No, there was there was that gap. So we had this period when um, uh, I went back to Melbourne. It was the middle of winter. It was a bit, you know, no, was the what do I do next? Do, um, uh, the the at sea stuff, the actual fishing stuff. Um, I kind of felt I'd done it. And there wasn't like I didn't want to really hang around and be like a an engineer or a skipper too much, um, but the opportunity came up to um, move to the west where the business was building a fleet of ten boats super quick. So uh, I came across to Perth, and um, yeah, that was a, that was a crazy ride. So I became the um, the, uh, the owner's representative in the shipyard as these boats were rolling off the production line uh, at, the po- at the pace of about one every two weeks. So it was um, it was pretty wild. And, yeah, I had the job of um, doing sea trials, getting them fitted out, provision, and, send- and sending them on the way. So um, it was, uh, yeah, it was quite good fun. And those boats ended up, Round on the um, round in Townsville and uh, on the east coast, and they were to go fishing uh, off the east coast at that stage. But um, that didn't last too long. We ended up struggling to make a living out of that fishery, and finally made a decision to jump to really to commit to the the Gulf of Carpentaria prawn fishery, where uh, things were a bit. It was a bit more productive, and things were a bit better managed, and you had a chance of making a dollar. Um, but again, that that that, um, that morphed into other challenges as the fishery got heavily over over um, overfished during the mid '80s, and um, and then ensued like about a 25-year battle to reduce the size of the fleet, and um, and finally in 2007, after lots of twists and turns, um, the fleet went from nearly 300 back to 52. 
Wow. Is that sort of indicative of what's happening across the board with fisheries in highly developed nations and regions? Are we seeing this pairing back or what sort of what are some of the trends that are happening in Australia or in other developed regions? Uh, there's different ways of doing it. And in fisheries, there's a different uh, there's different management approaches. So we can have import management systems which uh, determine the number of boats and the amount of gear that are in a fishery. And that works quite well for a, an annual crop like prawns where you, you can't forecast one year to the next what you're likely to catch. Um, the species that are longer lived, anything from three, five up, upwards years, of life expectancy for a species, you can start to manage through output controls, which are quotas. And so it plays out differently and uh, there's different economic drivers, but in input control fishery, like the prawn fishery, the uh, the effort is, the, the, the question is all about control, <clears throat> control of the effort. And um, that was where all, all the work had to be. So. When you had a fishery which is finite, it can only produce so much in a season and you're trying to feed 300, then everybody goes hungry. Uh, if you've got a fishery, as we finally ended up, uh, which is now 52 boats, then um, we've kind of, we're able to feed everybody that's there. So everybody's got a, in with a good chance and the, there's a bit left over for the fishery for the, for the following year. And um, I think... Uh, that that fishery now, uh, that northern prawn fishery, I think, is in excellent shape, and um, and we just roll with the seasonal the seasonal ebb and flow of of good years and bad years, uh, really like any other agri business. What was it like, and what did it take to have that intervention with that particular fishery, and to to get it to this point of sustainability? What's uh, what are the elements that really needed to come under control and what were some of the stages that went through in order to make that huge transition in 2007? Yeah, that was huge um, and many, 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 many steps. Uh, so I think uh, one, of the, one of the things that um, uh, yeah, you've got to, you to be careful not to um, take, taking, taking um, too much credit, but I think this business, um, particularly through my predecessor, my mentor, in fact, uh, was instrumental in keeping that pressure up. So for 25 years, um, you'd get out of bed and you'd say, we need less boats in this fishery. And then you're dealing with the hard realities of how do you make that happen? Who's going to go and on what terms? And the fishery went through an extraordinary set of um, uh, birthing pains to get to the point we have now. Um, and in the process, uh, we, we had... Uh, little Aussie battlers pitted against the, um, corporate corporate operators. We had um, uh, Senate inquiries, death threats, uh, legal challenge. We had industry-funded buyback. We had government-guaranteed uh, debt to facilitate adjustment. And finally, we had, uh, apart from all of the millions of economic analyses that pointed to the wisdom of of uh, the the course we were taking. Um, it was it was tooth and nail, you know. It's like it's like at times hand to hand combat almost, um, because you're dealing with people's livelihoods and you're wanting to make sure that um, well, you're recognising that not everybody can be there, and those that need, need that those that are leaving need to uh, leave with dignity, and um, that 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 adjustment is difficult. 
and those that stay end up um, uh, having to sh shoulder some of the burden. Uh, we were finally um, delivered a, uh, a significant adjustment event with some Commonwealth monies in um, 2007 uh, that took the fleet that last yard from 85 boats to 52. And um, uh, yeah, I think that, that whole journey really was really um, a, a powerful learning about the, com the commitment to a longer term outcome. It's, it was the right thing to do. It wasn't the easy thing to do. And, um, and uh, to stay focused on, on the, on the goals and, I'm, I'm immensely proud of the fishery that we've got there now. Yes, and you should be. Um, just quickly, so how many vessels do you have operating up in that fishery now? Uh, we're operating 11. 11, out great. Of 52. So that experience and, and that learning, those 25 years of, of process to, to get this great outcome for the fishery, um, how does that then give us a bit of an insight into the challenges in curtailing um, overfishing globally and doing similar um, evolutions to fisheries that clearly need it what can we what can we learn from that experience or is does that give you I suppose hope or does that give you a sort of indication of just how hard it is to create significant change in other fisheries yeah a bit of both um, the under the underpinning I think in uh, in leading fisheries management regimes is the strength of the property right and Australia's blessed to be in uh, the lead the lead constellation of company of countries that do recognize the value of access rights in fisheries and it is that underpinning that 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 sense of ownership that makes uh, companies like ourselves commit resources to longer term outcomes um, and those outcomes and that commitment is aligned with that community expectation so we have with that with that access right we have a powerful self-interest in seeing that all sorts of stuff gets done right and that that it means you know and if you like the the fisheries adjustment work what well, it wasn't so much about um a biological outcome or a sustain a classic biologically sustainable outcome it was more about an economic outcome so we could we could all go there 300 boats could pitch up work for three days a year go home, catch everything that was appropriate. We could have all the other checks and balances in place, <clears throat> but we'd all go broke. And so um, what we do know is you can't be, you know, if you really want to aspire to the big things, you still got to make a quid. Um, the, the line I use, which is you've got to be, um, you got to be in the black to be green. Um, if, you, if you're in the red, then every day is a struggle and none of this bigger stuff happens. And we do see examples in other fisheries where um, that's the case. Um, I'm hesitant to point <laughs> point their name fisheries, but uh, where they've been um, unable to address capacity, then you end up with the worst of everything. You end up with poor environmental outcomes, poor safety outcomes, poor poor maintenance and, and new investment outcomes, uh, low investment in in uh, new technology, low investment in branding and positioning, um, and really overall poor social license outcomes. So it's this, it's kind of this vicious circle. And I think, uh, again, to your question, um, the Northern Prawn Fishery has been a good example of what a strong rights base can do. Um, 
but it's it still needs this again a bit trite, but it does need that leadership. You need that you need those the the, the right people pushing at the right time. Mm. So that sounds like a good example, I suppose, where these property rights have um, have been fought for and are well established. Let's go to one of your other fisheries, which is the the Patagonian toothfish that happens in the sort of southern ocean. Tell us a little bit about how how property rights can can work in a setting like that, because obviously we know a huge amount about the uh, illegal and renegade operators that, that go down there. So talk a little bit about that particular fishery and some of the challenges you've had there. Yeah, very different experience. We um, <clears throat> at that at that stage in our life, we had Spanish investment, and they were very keen that we diversify out of just prawn fishing into some of the um, deep sea fisheries. Uh, <laughs> they, gen they generously had a boat that uh, was surplus to requirements in in South in their South African operation, which was coming to the end of her life, and uh, it was the deal of the century. It nearly um, nearly nearly did us in, um, and so um, uh, we wandered around the high seas, and we saw firsthand how difficult making a living living in the commons can be. Uh, you know, when you find when you find fish, everybody's able to capitalise on that. Uh, so we focused again on some of the Australian uh, subantarctic fisheries. It started with a look see at the Macquarie fishery, just a, a pure exploration. We got a quick permit just to go and have a peek, and we found this strange-looking fish. <clears throat> um, did quite well out of that. Um, uh, sufficient to make us think that maybe um, given that this is sort of the broader circumpolar distribution of toothfish that there may be something at um, Heard Island. Again fortuitous that it is Australian, uh, it is within the Australian 200 mile exclusive economic zone and so um, we we put a boat down there or we put this particular boat down there and um, uh, a trip, a trip like that's worth about a, mi a million and a half dollars with crew and consumables and fuel, and um, we caught nothing. Went down there, caught caught nothing. It's like from Albany, from Albany to Heard Island, depending on the weather, it could be a week or ten days just to get there. So uh, we went down, wandered around, and thought, "Hmm, that's no good." Um, came back, and um, I wasn't driving the bus at that stage, but. Uh, uh, Murray was sufficiently convinced it was something there. He said, "We're going again. Reload. We're going again. Put a put another load of fuel in. Uh, put a different crew on. Another skipper, and um, down we went. And um, uh, I don't know whether it's good news or bad news, but um, we got down there and um, we found uh, six Argentinian flag vessels, all busily fishing for toothfish." In a place we later we later named Evitas after that famous Argentinian lady, and um, and then then began our, our um, complex, contentious relationship with um, Patagonian toothfish and and that part of the world, um, and it's really been permanently intertwined with illegal fishing and driving the necessary policy settings and building government will and. Uh, getting getting the kinds of collaborations that we needed to make that uh, secure to secure our borders. Uh, at the same time as um, 
developing that fishery understanding, the, the full extent of it, what would be safe to remove on an annual basis or sustainable, and then building um, uh, building uh, teams and boats and people and brands and all of the other stuff that comes from that. But none of that would have would have been possible, but for again this this um, the sense of a, a property right. So the idea that you can um, you can you can be looking after this is mine. I'm going to look after it. What's the status of that uh, region now? What do we what do we know of um, yeah of illegal activity down there at this sort of current point in time? Uh, best guess we have, Tim, is uh, it's non-existent. So uh, that that's an extraordinary result. Um, we hadn't. We had uh, up until 2015. There was about six boats that were very, very sticky, and um, uh, if you like, serious uh, serial recalcitrants uh, roaming uh, unregulated through the the vast Southern Ocean, and uh, I'm sure helping themselves to to um, some of our fish from time to time. Uh, at this by this stage, we'd. We're, we've been able to develop trade certification scheme for fish. That means, you know, we can't, nobody can buy or sell this fish uh, internationally without a proper, basically a birth certificate and a tra uh, um, all of the backing that goes with that. Uh, but these boats were operating in in sort of this 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 grey area, this um, yeah, the, the murky area of illegal operators. And uh, at that stage, Sea Shepherd took an interest in. In uh, in toothfish generally, and um, uh, they'd suspended whale wars for for a tad. And um, uh, when they first made that announcement, we were we were uh, somewhat anxious that they may um, uh, find find it difficult to find anybody down there. Uh, that they may then sort of redirect some of their interest into uh, into looking harder at what we're doing as lawful operators, and that became a bit of a risk. Uh, but gradually, uh, we got to know those guys. We were able to improve their their understanding of, of the history that we'd had in this fishery. And um, uh, uh, we, we now have an exceptionally close relationship. But the, um, the, the outcome of that summer was uh, the successful location of a, a vessel called the Thunder that was found south of the Australian zone. Uh, they pursued that boat for 110 days, wandering around the bottom of the southern Indian Ocean, uh, through under Africa, up the west coast of Africa. And uh, we had a small cameo role in that pursuit uh, as at that same period we were delivering a boat we just bought and done some refit work uh, in Norway. She was coming uh, into the operation, travelling down the west coast of Africa, and um, we were able to join in the um, we were able to join in the uh, the pursuit, if you like, um, with that boat. But uh, yeah, it was that was a really interesting, like a powerful um, collaboration. An NGO, an NGO with a fishing company, um, being very public about what. Uh, what evils illegal fishing represent, and um, the outcome the outcome was apart from a brilliant documentary that uh, is available. The um, the outcome was the master of the the thunder scuttled his own vessel just a matter of days after uh, after we uh, we had put our shoulder to the wheel there, and um, 
the Sea Shepherd guys, uh, you know, they issued a May Day. They were um, they were rescued. Uh, they were delivered to um, a, uh, an Atlantic jurisdiction, uh, Saint Tome Principe, and um, again, Sea Shepherd uh, evidence was able to uh, to affect a, um, a conviction for the uh, skipper and his officers. And um, uh, yeah, but so really, that that summer saw the end of um, in a series of of operations saw the end of those six boats that have been a thorn in our side for so long. Wow. I'd love to come back a little bit more to the Tooth Fish and to the alliance with um, non-profit organisations, but I just want to say to everyone listening in, go and watch the Chasing the Thunder documentary. I know if you do a search for it in Australia, you'll find you can watch it on 7 Plus and there's probably other places you can watch it, but it is edge of the seat viewing, and I don't think it really gets any more edge of the seat until those uh, closing moments when the, the master does decide to scuttle his own ship. But I just want to read out something here because it was the words of, oh, I think, one of the engineers on the Atlas Cove, that new vessel you were talking about, and the way he articulates um, the sentiment of these legal operators like yourselves to the legal operators, I just think sums up so much about the project um, where he says, if you want to keep fishing in the Southern Ocean, do it through the right channels like everybody else does and become a responsible person. We have to take care of the little that is left in the seas because if we don't, there will be nothing left for our children, grandchildren and grand and great-grandchildren over. And when he says those words, it just, it just says these are the people we need to be listening to and supporting in their, um, in their harvesting of the ocean. Yeah, and um, I was super proud because um, the the run up to that, uh, and it was the the skipper of the Atlas skipper. Cove that, that that wrote the words. It was the chief engineer that that um, that conveyed them in Spanish to this to the master of the thunder. But um, uh, uh, my 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 um, my pride came with knowledge that I'd had only two conversations with Steve. The first conversation was as he was, we were still weeks away from a possible encounter, just saying now, and he wasn't aware of any of the other work that we'd done with Sea Shepherd. He had all of the same negative bias to Sea Shepherd that a uh, big part of the, the uh, fishing industry would have had. Um, I said to Steve, now, are you going to think I'm crazy, but um, uh, we're thinking we need to help Sea Shepherd in the pursuit of this boat. Uh, frankly, this is work that we should be doing or government should be doing. Um, we haven't been able to fault their commitment uh, to <clears throat> to this cause and best practice and um, uh, watch this space. So we weren't sure whether the logistics would line up. Um, <clears throat> the subsequent, uh, we had to we had to clear the um, we had to clear a possible engagement with um, our Japanese partners. So you can imagine some challenges there. Um, and then the logistics was such that, yes, this this rendezvous or encounter was possible. Uh, so it was one more call to Steve saying, here's the number for the for the Bob Barker. Um, Peter Hammerstad's the skipper. I'll leave you guys to organise the, uh, the timing and the rendezvous. The, the rest is up to you. And so... Um, you know, a cynic could say, "Well, you wrote those words, but um, that's not what happened." Steve, Steve wrote those words, and um, uh, they were—they've been 
they've been reproduced in all sorts of interesting places, including on um, Paul Watson's Facebook page. <coughs> mm. so, um, well, they came in my part from uh, Outlaw Ocean, which is Ian Abena's great tale of crime and survival in the last untamed frontier. The great there you, there you go. So very different fisheries then, prawns in the north and, uh, and Patagonian toothfish. Um, how do you approach sustainability for the toothfish? It's a very, very different um, species. Uh, what can you tell us about that particular fish and, and how you're currently managing that fishery? Uh, yeah, very different. So where prawns is an annual crop, it's like, like wheat or cherries or <coughs> apples, um, toothfish is like uh, hardwood timber. Um, long, long live, slow growing, and um, and uh, ex uh, as a, as a result, very susceptible to overfishing. So it'd be easy to mine a resource like toothfish if you weren't real careful. So uh, for us, that's meant a um, a really heavy commitment to research and science. Really, ever since we've been operating there, it's been with with uh, observers, uh, in fact, two observers. We collect um, an, an extraordinary amount of biological data on size, gender, um, ageing. We gather otoliths, so we've got very detailed ageing uh, knowledge of the stock. Uh, we've done archival tags. We've found fish that have swum out of the fishery and then swimming, swim, swim back. Um, uh, yeah, so we're spending yeah, millions annually on um, uh, fisheries independent surveys and um, and more recently as climate becomes an issue that we need to watch for um, we've found ourselves um, looking at the the um, environmental variabilities or climate climatic change and its impact on productivity for that fishery so um, uh, that's a big deal and we continue to take um, I think a very conservative approach to to um, harvest levels and all the stock assessment work uh, is done by the Antarctic Division uh, with support by CSIRO. Those stock assessments are then reviewed by an international panel of scientists who are expert in toothfish through the, through the Commission for the Conservation of Antarctic Living Marine Resources. Anyway, it's very, very comprehensive, Tim, and, um, uh, and it's something that we... Um, that we uh, pay a lot of attention to. So you pay a lot of attention and you pay a lot of money. How does that then translate into the market? And I, I suppose um, I might be sort of prying into any of those pain points you have. You can go and do all this incredible work to ensure the viability and sustainability of these fisheries, but does that then translate when it reaches market? And what are you doing to sort of make sure it does? It's a great fish. Um, this, uh, uh, you know, from a culinary point of view, it, it's unique. It's uh, got a, it's a very subtle flavour, exceptionally high oil content at 24% or so. For chefs, um, it's just, it's just hard to bugger up. You know, you can't overcook it like you would a, a snapper or something similar, because uh, it's such a delicate flavour and it's got so much oil. It's, it's just so versatile, whether steamed or or um, grilled or crispy skinned or, you know, it, it's an amazing fish. Um, so we've got a head start in terms of uh, valuing the product. 
um, the uh, the extra bits um, have to have to then come on top. So um, I think uh, again, that's been an extraordinary journey. Um, uh, perhaps a simple example um, from from the um, the early two thousands was as the illegal fishing started to apply a lot of pressure to the resource. Um, quite rightly, environmental NGOs were looking at the at the, the demand side, and uh, there was some pretty significant effort from particularly US based based NGOs to call for a boycott on consumption of the fish. So the simple the simple you know, the, um, risk and reward trade-off. So if we could reduce the reward then and increase the risk, then we could do an end to the illegal fishing. Uh, the trouble with that was it's a very blunt instrument and uh, the good guys get get wounded. So in our case, you know, we, here we are with two observers on board. Uh, we've got all of the compliance costs, all the research costs that go with operating in a lawful fishery. Um, we're having our fish and at that, in that stage, our fish was being stolen from us. There was fish um, re being removed from the Australian fishery that would impact on our long-term uh, our long-term uh, productivity. But insult to injury, um, we were competing against this fish in in those same markets. So you go to the US market, it was a it was a fish that was caught illegally on a much lower cost um, without all of the without all the fancy bits and then competing with this uh, unfairly at, at low prices. So it was, it was um, a, pr a pretty ugly time. Um, we, we endured, uh, again, we spent quite a lot of money looking to um, bring, bring that political pressure to bear that would uh, secure the borders for, for Australia. And I think we did that pretty well. Um, that was in the early 2000s again. Um, for Australian audiences, it was a Four Corners, a Four Corners expose, which I think was the turning point. <clears throat> and then um, we had some very significant help from the Howard government at that stage, and some uh, increasingly robust um, uh, on water compliance actions. So that was all. Um, that was all pretty. Uh, that was all pretty handy. But from a market point of view, we still had this residual. As as we started to get the borders under control. We still had this residual kind of boycott cloud hanging over us, and um, it was it was kind of it was socially unacceptable. So, particularly if you're a premium brand chef and you're you're touting the use of a, in that market, it was a Chilean sea bass. You know, you're you're selling Chilean sea bass, then you're setting yourself up to be attacked by NGOs who would accuse you of. Um, uh, aiding and abetting the um, the willful destruction of this of this um, precious remote fish resource, and so you're not going to touch it. And so we saw a whole bunch of uh, high-end users basically abandon abandon the category, even though they love the fish, they love working with the fish. Um, it was just it was just too hot too hot to handle. And so um, we then uh, we then got a bit systematic about how we could rehabilitate. The, uh, the image of this fish in the marketplace. Uh, we began with getting, um, again, getting the borders under control so we could demonstrate that the illegal, the illegal fishing within the Australian zone was well in hand or well, in, well eliminated. Uh, we were successful at, in that in the early 2000s. Um, we, were, <clears throat> uh, we were then uh, in a position where we had enough knowledge of the productivity of the stock 
and uh, the impact on ecosystem impacts in, in sufficient to secure MSC certification. So this is Marine Stewardship Council certification, and that was a big deal. Um, again, uh, yeah, many environmental NGOs viewed that as uh, perhaps not being possible um, for a species like that, but um, the bar is very high to meet that requirement, and uh, we jumped over all those hurdles. Um, that still wasn't enough. MSC certification wasn't wasn't uh, deemed satisfactory. Uh, it was, you know, it was nice insurance. It started to work, but um, there was still a whole bunch of um, information on seafood chooser websites and others around the world that said, you know, this is this is a void. You can't you can't touch this fish. So then we had another process where we went to the next heavyweight uh, in the space, and that's the um, Monterey Bay Aquarium Seafood Watch Program, and um, we said to them, you know, you've got a, you've got a you've got an assessment for our fish here, which um, which was perhaps accurate a few years ago, but the world's moved on. Um, we would argue that um, this is now out of date, and in, indeed, you um, you are injuring our recovery. You're missing an opportunity to celebrate what is a significant turnaround. Um, they said, well, we've got 2,000 fish in this, in this program. It's, we might get to it in two years' time. <laughs> and um, we said, well, what else you got? <laughs> we've got to do better than that. Uh, anyway, we, we, knew the, um, uh, we knew Mike Sutton from um, Monterey Bay, and he said, well, we've experimented with something. So we ended up, we've got a, a Swiss consultancy to, to apply uh, the Monterey Bay Aquarium's, if you like, guidelines for sustainable fisheries and their, their traffic light system, they've got red, uh, red, green and amber. And uh, that was another year's process. We went through um, an extraordinary amount of um, uh, sort of hoops to test that. Again, 40 different NGOs involved in, in one form or another. And um, at the end of that, we, we were able to shift uh, their advice on our fish from red or uh, avoid to green or best choice. And so um, armed with armed with both an MSC certification and a Monterey Bay um, green rating for the fish, we were able to then systematically work through all of the other seafood chooser websites in a way that um, we could say, well, listen, you don't have to you don't have to take out our word for it. These independent organisations have assessed this fish um, to be well managed. Um, you need to um, revise your uh, advice to your to your um, stakeholders. And so bit by bit, we were able to transform a Google search on toothfish from you know, rare and endangered, Ill illegally fished, um, right through to really, uh, and boycott, right through to uh, celebrity chef endorsements and recipe suggestions. And um, that step alone uh, was critical in, in allowing it, uh, those big name chefs to put this fish they love back on the menu um, and I think more importantly or equally importantly the chance to actually celebrate a success uh, a success where a fishery's gone or a species has gone from being pretty well brutalized to um, now under exceptional uh, exceptional um, and well-managed terms and it's a, it's a fantastic story in fact uh, there's, there's a book being written about it all is uh, is this a precursor to you getting this lifetime achievement award for the uh, from the MSC? That sounds like a huge amount of your time and energy going into 
overcoming that massive obstacle. Oh yeah, just one of the. One of the uh, as I reflect on my short forty-two year career, um, I figure I've been blessed with uh, worthy challenges, Tim. <laughs> That's just one. It's just a, just another one. Let's talk about um, one of the next challenges that you're uh, you're taking on, which is the, the Seafood for Good initiative. And this is obviously something that you've been pioneering for a while with Austral, but you're also uh, launching a brand new. Uh, sort of accelerator and crowdfunding project with Start Some Good. Do you want to tell us a, a little bit about this initiative? Uh, yep. <clears throat> Maybe just um, need to back up a little bit. So um, the uh, one of one of the things that we did once once we were able to um, demonstrate that we were um, we were good guys in terms of getting that particularly that toothfish. Um, sorted out. We were able to get, uh, also were able to get Marine Stewardship Council certified um, prawn fishery. So the prawn fishery got got sorted out as well. So our whole, all of our activities um, were able to tick the box. And again, that's not trivial for a prawn fishery, given the the extent of um, bycatch and other things there. Um, the um, the next step for us was building uh, building brands. So we've um, we've got a We've got a brand um, for the toothfish, which is Glacier 51. Uh, for, for our tiger prawns, we've got a, a Skull Island giant tiger prawn brand. And these are sort of um, uh, themed on provenance and each of those names has uh, a place on the chart. So they're actually referred to a place. Um, but in the grand tradition of, of brands, the um, they have an Instagram presence. They've got Got a, there's a bit of razzle-dazzle that comes from having the right people handling them and say nice things about them. So that, that all fits there. But um, the brands also leave you with um, uh, this deep sense of awareness around, um, you know, you're visible, you've got your head up. And so you've got to make sure uh, with brands that, um, again, for, the, for our business, it started with commodities and then it went through all these things that we thought were very natural. And then once we'd caught the fish, we'd just put it on the wharf, find somebody that could pay us for the cargo and turn it into money and not worry about it. Um, uh, we then gradually trans, sort of transferred that into this branded space. We felt there was more value there. Um, and the brands are quite a, diff, a different way of doing business. So you've got to hold fish for a whole year to make sure people have got uh, product available, um, you uh, you are open into much more scrutiny, and then um, brands also give you something to lose, and uh, that that started to have us refocus on some of the issues around social license and um, the need for um, dealing proactively with some of what we sort of otherwise referred to as um, our dirty little secrets. Um, so social license is just about really being fearlessly um, frank about the things you don't you're not doing as well as you should, um, but equally being authentic about committing to improve um, the way you do things. So um, I think I think we've done that pretty well. It was certainly not perfect. It's a it's a journey that never ends. Um, but the brands uh, now embody for us. Um, I don't know if you're going to get get to this at some point, but um, 
we've also taken on the, the commitment to have more to say about climate and the need to offset our emissions, <clears throat> uh, which we've now done for over four years. And that's all that's all wrapped in the in the brand proposition that we um, that we share with our supply chain partners and and our ultimately our consumers. And so uh, on that point, can I say um, Australia's first carbon neutral fishery, or was there any sort of global accolades that came along with doing that as well? Um, as far as I know, we're still um, globally the only fishing company um, four years on. So it's like within two weeks of Paris um, COP21 in 2015, our board agreed to um, uh, entertain our folly here. Um, uh, for which I'm humbled, um, <coughs> but um, uh, we're still the only ones, so far as I know. There's others. There's some so wholesalers and sort of traders and retailers that play with it, but the big emissions in fish is generated from the diesel we burn to put boats to sea, and um, and our our uh, our accounting includes offset. In, Offsetting all the CO2 derived right through to um, putting it on the putting on the gas stove in New York if it gets to that. So um, incredible! Uh, it's a big, still a big deal. Um, but it, it, and maybe we'll get to this again. But it does it does speak to the the need for I mean, uh, yeah, broader view that we have about the need to be uh, relevant, not just to the bottom line, but to um, to our environment and our um, our communities, and um, for us, you know, we are seeing firsthand the impact of climate change on fisheries. Um, it just didn't feel right to complain about it and be contributing to it at the same time. And um, and the move has given us um, access and opportunities that we perhaps wouldn't have had any other way. But um, the start some the start some good initiative is really uh, a little bit reflects the challenge that we've had in 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 fully unlocking the value of our values. So there's all this effort that goes into putting a piece of fish or a prawn on a plate, and um, most most folks really have no uh, no idea of the, the the depth and the complexity and the subtlety and the nuance um, that uh, that makes that possible, and um, and if, uh, as I get to the end of my career, if you know that 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 is to that is to endure, if this if this program is to um, to truly be part of the the Austral offer, then it needs to demonstrably generate a um, a financial return. So. Um, and I think that's possible. So I um, I do believe, and this this is kind of it's almost um, dogma for me, but um, I don't think I don't think doing the right thing needs to be the zero sum game. I think uh, I absolutely believe that we can do good for um, planet and people and shareholders all at once. And so um, start some goods really that that uh, that uh, that itch that we need to scratch. So it's given that we've got a global reach, um, how do we connect our, our value and values um, in a way that consumers uh, can see, feel and touch it and, 
um, essentially affect the transaction. So it's really slinking, slinking sort of this clunky fishing, fish, fishing business with, um, with uh, folks that care what we care about and are up for, um, uh, not to put too fine a point on it, they're paying a premium. No, I, th I, think, I think people are happy to pay when um, good things happen. Yep, and I'm um, I'm one of those people um, proudly to declare myself a a conscious consumer. I don't know quite what that means, but it's a it's putting a lens over the way you look at the world and look at the purchases that you make, and just going through that little line of questioning. So, safe to say, if people that are listening in are, are looking in through your products through that lens, they're going to be pretty happy with what they find. So how about we have a bit of a chat then about this um, the Seafood for Good project with Start Some Good. Um, essentially, we're looking for innovators, startups, established businesses, people who've got great ideas in how to increase, I suppose, the um, you know the market for those three brands that you mentioned: Glacier Fifty One, Skull Island, and the Karumba Prawns. And Start Some Good are essentially going to be facilitating a 12-week accelerator to help turn these ideas or um, startups into something crowdfund ready. And those that uh, make it through, I think you're looking for two to go through to the final stages of the crowdfunder, and that will then go out pre-summer pre 2020. And, uh, and people will be able to actually fund these great ideas. I think it's brilliant. Um, tell us a little bit about the process in establishing this relationship with Start Some Good and, and why this, this angle. Mm, interesting. Um, so it still, it still links to the idea of uh, yeah, people wanting to connect with those, those values. Um, I was, I confess, influenced to some extent by the, um, the Thank You Water experience. Where um, and we're probably probably not in the same league, but for those not familiar, uh, Thank You Water was was quite clearly a, um, a, a profit for purpose uh, purpose yeah whatever that is profit for purpose uh, business and um, and they've got a, they've got a lovely linkage between each of the products that are offered and particular projects they support. In this case, for water, it was um, some African projects, and uh, the consumers could scan a code and get a an instant feed on where the um, uh, where the where the if you like the profit or the premium that they were paying for this brand would end up. Um, they started pretty simple. They were able to then get their way into, and I could argue even bully their way into supermarkets like um, Woolworths, off the sheer weight of numbers of consumers saying. We want this on our supermarket shelves, and um, and now um, we see thank you products everywhere. So um, uh, there's those there's those sorts of those sort that sort of thinking uh, certainly was heavily in my mind. Uh, the start some good approach is just looking to unlock um, sort of the if you like um, all those clever people out there who um, who can connect with the um, the rarefied air, which is our premium seafood brands and the consumers that are up for that particular experience. And um, uh, um, yeah, really, and that's the challenge. That's, uh, that's, we're just looking, looking to all of the energy and creativity of, 
of uh, the wider crowd to um, to make what we do an outrageous success in a way that might inspire others to follow our lead. Yeah, and obviously um, full transparency there that Ocean Impact Organisation are um, are a proud partner in helping to amplify this because it's it's fair and square in our wheelhouse, um, and we just really want to see it uh, it turn into a great success. So. If you're listening in and this sounds like something that might be up your alley or you know someone, um, you've got until the 27th of May to get applications in. Um, I just did a search online for start some good seafood and you'll find links out there. And yeah, it'll be basically going through some some mentoring and coaching uh, to turn your great idea into something viable. And then there, yeah, the crowdfunder will come out later in the year. We'll talk about that. And so people will then be able to um, to buy into this these ideas. So it's a, it's a really great initiative. Um, well done on that one. Um, what else should we talk about here? There is so much that we can that we can talk about. Um, do you want to talk a little bit about, I suppose, the future of business as as you sort of see it? Obviously you've been an incredible leader and a pioneer in, in transforming uh, this the seafood sector around your work with Austral, how can that then be a a guide or some lessons to be taught to to other industries and sectors? Do you pay a lot of attention and thought to that? Uh, yeah, I, 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 the idea of leader and impact and those things that always sit comfortable. Um, I kind of I just figure um, from a from personal point of view, yes, I've been here a long time and. And I know that at this part of my career, the chance to make the, the opportunity that I have to make a difference in this business is um, is a unique privilege, and it's what get, it's what gets me out of bed after uh, so many years in the game. Um, I think um, it's also that chance to kind of live live some of those so those bigger beliefs, as I said earlier, the idea that. Business can be a force for good, um, uh, right or wrong. I have the view that business that's singularly focused on the bottom line um, and uh, chooses to ignore the rest of the world is uh, they have their days are numbered. And um, and uh, yeah, so if, if by our actions we are able to um, we are able to. Uh, Maybe get other people thinking about things. Then, well and good. Um, I think the other the other stuff I've kind of enjoyed more lately has been sharing our journey with um, some uh, other agri business people. Curiously, so outside of fish specifically, because uh, the fish world certainly in Australia is quite small, and most people know what we're up to. But um, in ag, it's been it's been quite um, uh, it's. I think we've been been able to not tell them how to do things, but just through through stories, being able to um, uh, explain what we've what we've been up to and what what challenges we've had and how we've we've um, how we've dealt with them, basically. So, uh, and you look across, you know, the, the the thirty or forty years, and you see each each of these different challenges. Um, and the way we've stepped up, and I think the common theme for me is the the, the tendency to do the right thing, not the easy thing. And um, and 
because we're not a public company and we don't have quarterly reports to worry about, uh, we can take a really long-term view and um, uh, and we know that ultimately that represents uh, shareholder value. Um, you know, I was, I was quite chuffed uh, a couple of years ago. Two years ago, we were struggling to catch all of our toothfish quota, for example. And um, uh, that's, you know, not catching quota. That's like, that's that's the cardinal sin in um, in the fish business. Uh, yeah, that does, that does not compute. Um, and for whatever reason, this was, this was one of the triggers for um, the work that we've done on looking at environmental variables in, in that toothfish stock. But we, um, uh, we were all set to go. We had another boat that could come in and help us take that fish before the end of the season. Uh, we took about 400 tonnes, a serious amount of profit involved. And um, uh, we're all set to hit the button, all set to go with, yes, we could catch all that fish. And we sat there, looked at ourselves and said, no, no, this is the wrong thing to do. And um, uh, I told, told the board, this is, this is where we're at. This is a decision we made. And, um, and uh, they were very supportive. So um, extraordinary, yeah, million, millions of dollars of profit at stake. Um, but uh, that was the long-term decision. That was the right decision. Um, you would question if the business was uh, not in as good a shape, possibly a listed company, uh, shareholder expectations, um, with a with a you know quarterly or annual focus. Uh, making that decision would have been very difficult. Indeed, another moment just recently where you had the finger on the button, wondering whether or not to push it was um, was in the context of, of COVID nineteen and and launching the fisheries for the season. Do you want to tell us a little bit about uh, that particular um, experience and, and any of the stresses related to it and the, and the final decision? Still, still living those stresses. <laughs> um, yeah, uh, well, so the, uh, yeah, clearly the, uh, the virus pandemic government response to that became all-consuming for the world, uh, more so for us during March as, we were um, seeing ever tighter travel restrictions, um, seemingly increasing numbers of confirmed cases and the death toll rising. And then having to really challenge ourselves about, well, is it is it the right thing to be putting uh, young people who have travelled and mixed and don't really understand social isolation or distancing um, all on a boat to go into the remote wilds? Um, uh, yeah, it was an interesting set of thought processes. Um, yes, you could have taken the easy approach, and I think um, these are a bit more um, these are a bit more philosophical concepts. But uh, I think we've been fed a um, fed a kind of a line of late. We've got comfortable, and we've we've been fed a line to suggest that um, life's risk free. That you know we can do everything risk free. Um, this really put that back in focus. And for me, um, you're forced to recalibrate your assessment of risk. And um, uh, I personally got to the view that it was absolutely the right thing to go fishing uh, for the many people that rely on us for um, you know that the direct benefit of that fishing operation to feed their families and provide them with their valued work opportunities. And uh, and then more broadly, the the supporting in industries that 
um, maintain our boats and transport our product and and uh, distribute and sell our products. Um, it was just like, well, we kind of have an obligation here. I just feel we had an obligation to um, carry on. Now, Cindy could say, well, of course you're going to say that because it's you know you're an evil, profit-driven pack of bastards, but um, uh, and that's tr- that's that's true. Our evil evil profit-driven pack of bastards. Um, but uh, it's kind of accept the risk, review the risks, and manage those risks as best you can. Have plans for the eventuality that um, uh, a positive slips through, and get on with it. And um, uh, yeah, just super proud of the way you know, the, um, the Austral teams pulled together to make that happen in both the um, Southern Ocean fisheries and the um, and the prawn fishery. Uh, where today we've got 100. And, 72 people at sea on 15 boats in three different fisheries and um, and we're out there doing it. What that product going to be worth and how we get it off and what the crew changes look like, well, that's tomorrow's problem. Mm. Yeah, very um, very impressive. I think when we when we discovered and we were chatting around the time of that, it was I think we were even feeling some of your stresses, mate, but you seem to take on these challenges with, absolute um you know gusto and confidence does that come obviously down to the, the the amount of time you've been spending in this role um the support you have around you what if you just talk quickly about your mentor murray france and and what you sort of feel is can be learned from the mentor experience and, and i guess maybe this could be a nice little linkage to those people who may be thinking about the, the start some good accelerator um, and and building building their own personal skills, developing their ideas. What what are your sort of sentiments towards mentoring, in particular, Murray? Yeah, well, I had a great role model, and he became like uh, like uh, the dad, you know, the, my other dad in in that sense, the the professional dad. Um, well, I'm very proud of my other dad, um, <clears throat> but. Uh, yeah, and he's super patient, super super bright, and generous. And I think I think that the the measure of a good mentor for me is the um, is and this is certainly true of his belief in me, which is yeah he saw in me things I could not see myself. And um, as he as he handed me the baton, it was you'll either do quite well at this job or it'll kill you. <laughs> so, he's he's probably wrong. He's, he might be right on both counts because. Uh, um, yeah, <laughs> dodged, dodged heart disease and prostate cancer. So, um, but I'm still here like the Black Knight, Tim. <laughs> awesome. Hey, look, I think um, we can safely say this has been a, a great conversation, and anyone who's still listening would um, would attest to that. I wonder if we could just sort of start to wrap a couple of bows around things. Just, um, I'd love a bit of a glimpse into your, you know, your attitudes towards planet ocean as we call it you know you've mentioned some examples of where rogue fisheries have been contained and there's much better management taking place but how do you feel about the state of the ocean and and particularly fisheries um at the moment and and where is it heading Mm. yeah um yeah worry um so Yeah, well, ocean and climate. So I figure SDG 13 and 14 um, are me, and um, uh, the you know the role climate has on on our oceans 
um, we're seeing all of that play out, species shift, um, acidification, increased storm frequency, heat, heat, um, heat, marine heat waves impacting on mangroves in the Gulf of Carpentaria. Um, it's kind of it's kind of everywhere, and um, I think I think the big the bigger one for me is and the one that helps really really focus the mind is to reflect on what the ocean and the planet might look like in 30 years time so um, 30 years is not that far away um, but at that time forecasts not notwithstanding COVID-19 um, could see humanity number nearly 10 billion um, the the pressures on the planet are, um, are more extreme than ever um, the uh, the loss of biodiversity, um, warming generally, reduced productivity from our land. Um, uh, they all they all um, reflect sort of massive challenges for humanity. Um, depending on who I'm who I'm reading on the day, um, you're either quite depressed um, or you uh, you uh, just put your head down and keep ticking away as best you can. Um, I'm rambling now, but uh, no, the, 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 the challenges are, are really daunting. So for fisheries, um, no, no easy answer. If you're, if you're an um, Indonesian fisherman in a village in the archipelago um, or you're operating in an inshore fishery off the west coast of Africa, then your, your life is a combination of how many, how many others are trying to to use that resource, what level of governance is there? Is there um, is there controls on illegal fishing? How does that work? Um, I think there's some some interesting initiatives coming along that can help improve supply chains. There's some great um, collaborations at the big end of town with um, a thing called CBOS, which we need another hour to talk about. But um, you know, those ten companies uh, can start to in um, bring change to supply chains. It's got to happen quick. Um, but that's it. Um, we know if we get that right, nature, nature's ex incredibly resilient and um, and the rate at which recovery can take place is, uh, is quite inspiring. Um, then I flip back into the dark side and I think about most projections for coral reefs are um, are particularly dire. Um, 2050 sees 70 to 90 percent of them gone. Um, so yeah, we've got a lot of work to do. We do indeed. So we might just um, wrap things up with a, a couple of call to actions. Then, um, yeah, maybe send out some some encouraging words to to anyone out there. You know, be they a potential applicant for the 12-week accelerator or maybe that's just a, a call out there for for consumers to be to be more mindful of their choices um let's hear some final words from you david uh yeah dead right so for um for those that are up for an amazing journey i think we've done some incredible work um i am sure there's some something clever out there that can really galvanize um the offer that we've got with a with a marketplace that that um, cares and that does speak to this, this other notion I have about the future of the planet rests with progressive business uh, linking to well-informed consumers. 
Um, and we've seen in this this age of social media and Instagram, just just amazing, crazy things can just light that fire that um, turn a, a bottle of water into thank you water or a field of lavender lavender into a major tourist activity or a pink lake into a uh, the same sort of thing. So, um, yeah, I think I think we're doing God's work, and it's just finding that that magic magic key so um the opportunity to work with uh, motivated sharp young minds is um for me personally pretty exciting um so in the accelerator we'll have a bit of uh, togetherness hands-on time and for consumers um yeah choice is important um we all have an obli obligation to uh look at how we consume and to um if we if we're in that privileged position and to uh make choices that are in the better interest of of uh, the people, the planet, and, the, um, and in this case, um, except that a premium, that a premium does make that possible and it inspires others. So, you know, the market's, um, market's still not perfect, but um, it's the best we got. Well, uh, you certainly inspired myself and the whole team at Ocean Impact Organisation um, and your leadership most certainly doesn't go um, unnoticed, mate. So I just wanted to thank you so much for your time today and maybe just in closing, any last words and where people can go to find out more information about yourself or about Austria or the brands that you, that you um, send to market? Uh, yeah, thanks, Tim. Um, yeah, well, it all, all sits on uh, www.australfisheries.com.au. Um, if you're into emissions, then there's a, there's a public disclosure statement on um, on uh, our Scope 3 emissions, which are comprehensive. Uh, there's a couple of nice little videos there, and um, the brands are all listed. Uh, the brands each have an Instagram page that covers their, their um their uh, their names, so that's always a good that's always a good feed. Yeah, I actually must admit they're um, doing a great job of sharing lots of stories with the fisheries in operation at the moment. You can actually you can watch the whole process, and I guess that's part of that whole trawler to table um, attitude. You can see everything about this um, this product as it comes uh, to your to your table. Yeah, um, yeah, no, and, and we haven't even talked about about uh, blockchain and open SC, Tim. So. We can we can hold that one for another time. We can indeed. Um, no, look, thank you so much for your time and, and once again for your leadership and we're just really pleased to be able to, to help amplify the great work that you do. Many thanks, Tim. Very kind. Thanks, mate. Just raise your